0: Head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps
1: us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch
0: today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Andy, it is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011.
1: You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes.
0: How are you? I'm so good. Oh, I don't want to get too excited because I, to, I want to save it. But I'm pretty excited about the show tonight. <laughs> I don't want to get too juiced. I'm feeling a little bit juiced. I'm feeling sad. Why? Why? <laughs> Andy?
1: Well. <laughs>
0: Come on. Why? So we've
1: talked about 184 movies on this show. We have? That's a lot, a lot of movies.
0: So yeah, we've, done, be, we've done we've done four will be, four dumb episodes that aren't about movies that don't count, is what you're saying.
1: No, we've done 184
0: movies. I know, that's the, what I'm saying. We have 188 episodes. Oh, oh yes. yes so yes. bing bang boom, carry the one. Difference is wow. four. Four equals stupid that we didn't do movies. Yes. Yeah. Four, so what? Four four what's stupid your, episodes. What's your point?
1: So my point is we only have 26 reviews on, or ratings on iTunes.
0: How is that possible? I don't know,
1: but out of 184, yeah. that's, like, that's like one you know, I review can it. for
0: every seven episodes. <laughs> I can tell you why we don't have that many. Well, first of all, we we don't ask very often. We did for no, a while. No, we don't. And we'd be we great if people did that. If they went to iTunes, if you subscribe on iTunes, go to the iTunes store and, and give us a review. But mostly the reason they don't do it is because iTunes leaving a review is a pain in the butt. It is. It's it really a pain is. in the butt. and so I, I think, don't like doing it. I don't either, but I do it. I do it when I because I care.
1: Because I care, exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. that is sad. Are there any new ones? No. <sighs> sad. I know. Makes me sad. Yeah. Now I should be happy today. You should. You should because of this movie that we're doing tonight. Thank God we're doing this movie tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yes, let's talk about happy things. I want now. to talk about. I want to talk about Starship Troopers. Oh,
1: okay. Yes, a little, uh, a little uh, uh, back and forth on that one over what, on the Facebook. page. Over on
0: Facebook, what do you think about that? What do you think about that?
1: Honestly, I haven't seen it in a very long time. I remember watching it and just thinking it was just really ridiculous. Yeah, so the premise, um,
0: we should say, the premise is we posted on Facebook, Steve uh, Sarmento, the, the once-a-future king, posted on Facebook about an article uh, from The Atlantic that in which the premise is that Starship Troopers is one of the most misunderstood movies ever. And that it was such a self-aware satire film that most people didn't get it. Right. Right. And so, was your mind changed? Nope.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I knew that stuff was there. I mean, it was, I I could see it there when I watched the movie. I didn't like the movie the first time. I, I feel like I did rent it again somewhere down the line and watch it again and go, okay, yeah, I still see that stuff in there. But I don't know. I guess I just never really cared that much for the movie in the first place. So, it just didn't do a whole lot for me.
0: Well, we did have some... Uh, We have a couple of good comments on there, and I want to shout out to Philip Hurd, who says uh, that Starship Troopers is, in fact, uh, his most disliked film. And he tells us why. He says, "I think it's a sort of film that's all about message and has little else to offer." I can appreciate views that differ from my own when communicated well, but I think this is about as ham-fisted as you can get. From the Nazi uniforms to the brotastic behavior of the troopers, I think it shows a real lack of respect for the military in general and infantry in particular. Fascism is bad. No news scoop there, but it's a top-down pro- But it is a top-down problem. I think to portray the troops who fight and die as such small-minded non-thinkers is disrespectful. Uh, he goes on a little bit, but I think he—I uh, think you get the point. And uh, uh, Amy Shaw, uh, another friend of the show, says this, uh, echoing Philip's uh, point, but says also Denise Richards, who is on my irrational hate list. <laughs> <laughs> Our differing reactions to this movie were the reason I divorced my first husband. <laughs>
1: She must love, uh, what is the, uh, is it, is it die another day that has her? As oh, Tomorrow Never Christmas, Dies. Or Tomorrow Never Dies as yeah. Christmas Jones.
0: Yes. Or yeah. Terrible. She's the nuclear terrible. nuclear physicist. And yet, and yet Tomorrow Never Dies, I actually, I think that's the one I like, right? That's the one with, uh, Jonathan Price, Isn't yeah. it? Yeah. See, I like, I like that, that. I had fun with that movie. Yeah. But I don't like Christmas Jones. No. Oh, that was not good. Oh, dear. <laughs> Uh do we have other I have some follow up I do have another bit of follow up. Oh, let me hear Follow up from another show. I did a guest spot on the If You Like podcast. Oh, uh you right. know, we've talked about If You Like from our friends uh, Joel Micah Harris and Adam Lanter. Uh they do the show where you they give you recommendations. If you like one movie, you'll like these other things that you like. And so, uh Joel had uh said that Adam had never seen Seven Samurai. Akira Kurosawa's uh, Seven Samurai. And as you and I are someday going to be doing the uh, series on the Seven Samurai, I had already watched it, and mm-hmm. so uh, again, and so we we jumped in, and I came up with some uh, dare I say eclectic picks. Excellent, uh, I did. I'm pretty excited about it. So it was a I had a, an enormous amount of fun on that show. Uh, Joel is a uh, is a uh, gentleman and a scholar, and uh, it was it was a great deal of fun. And that episode goes live, I think, uh, tonight. Recording this on Thursday, uh, so if if you're listening to this show. Uh, if you like on Seven Samurai is probably live over it. If you like podcast or on iTunes, so check it out and and uh, and go to iTunes and give Joel and Adam a five star review for the If You Like podcast. You should do that. Yes, Because they're good guys. Absolutely. And uh, so that's that's my bit of follow-up. It was good fun.
1: Good. Sounds. I like picked a, I picked a Hindi like a film. Good show. I picked uh, a, really? Yeah,
0: I did. Hindi. Very interesting. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah. And uh, Roger Corman. That's all I have wow. to say. Yeah. I, yeah, I definitely have to check out your. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> you will, you will not respect me anymore. I think is what we're saying. <laughs> oh, Pete, I've never respected you. <laughs> <laughs> next reel everybody i'm pete wright and that there's andy nelson good day mate and we spoil movies tonight on the show the final in our epic dystopian action extravaganza with george miller's 2015 mad max fury road and seriously people we rarely do a new current release in theaters film on this show and we really do spoil it so you have been warned if you are listening you're still listening prepare to be spoiled or turn it off and go hit the theater and then come back uh, but before we get into any of the spoilage, you should learn more about us at TheNextReel.com, subscribe on iTunes, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at TheNextReel. And if you feel you're standing in line right now to legally change your name to Cheeto the Fragile, you're the kind of person who should head over to Instagram.com slash TheNextReel and play the NextReels Instagram, hashtag PonyPrize, hashtag Guess the Movie Challenge. Andy, how do we do against the blood bags this week? <laughs> well... Uh, you know, I think it was a,
1: a decent week. We th- we got three images in uh, before Glar said, our wonderful friend from another world, <laughs> was able to figure out the very mysterious images. I loved the images that uh, our dear friend Stephen Smart was using this week, uh, which must mean that I must uh, need I, I need to put this film on my must see right away list because these images are just so fantastic. Uh, it was from Predestination, the uh, new film with, uh, well, new-ish film for, that uh, has our constantly busy acting uh, friend Ethan Hawke in it, Directed, uh, written and directed by the Spierig brothers. And three images in, Glar said was able to figure it out predestination indeed, so he has entered to win the Pony Prize.
0: I, I have to tell you, first of all, congratulations Glar said again, thank you, but uh, Andy and I have to have words. I can't believe that now, because Steven Smart has put this uh, on the list, now is the time that you say you want to put this on your I have to see this movie now list, when I told you months ago that this movie was fantastic and you had to see it, but no, no, Pete said it and he likes Hindi films and Roger Corman and so I'm not going to trust him, but Stephen even smart from Scotland, yeah, he comes all the way across. I'm right here, man. Every week, I'm in your head.
1: All right, let me clarify. You recommended it to me, and I immediately put it on my Netflix queue. Okay, so Netflix is queue
0: is not the same as <laughs> no, I need to see the, this immediately. Film. Well,
1: and then I bumped it up when he when he, the images look so good. So,
0: <laughs> I love you, man. Jeez. I feel like we're just really starting off on the wrong foot. Andy, I think it's time. Let's do trailers.
1: I want to go first, Pete, because the trailer I'm going to talk about, I think, is going to be the next Fury Road for this summer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sell it, sell it. I am talking about none other... Then Jeez. the action horror thriller grizzly bear monster movie into the grizzly maze. That's right, everybody. David Hackles
0: <laughs> produced, produced by Greenpeace
1: it. and the World Wildlife <laughs> Fund. I can't even do it seriously. Uh, this this looks pretty silly. I will say, uh, yes, David <laughs> David Hackles. I didn't actually uh, know
0: that grizzlies traveled in mazes. <laughs>
1: I didn't either. I, I At first I saw this and I'm like, oh, is that the sequel to The Maze Runner? <laughs> but no, this is an action horror thriller into the grizzly maze about a giant monster grizzly bear that is stalking these people and trying to uh, get to them. And I would never, I honestly, I really don't give this film much thought. But I was just completely shocked and surprised to see that uh, David Hackle, who... Seems to be more of a production designer type of guy who's only really directed one other film, and that was Saw 5. Uh, He got to star in this uh, strange, grisly monster movie. Um, James Marsden, Piper Perabo, Billy Bob Thornton, Scott Glenn, (laughs) Thomas Jane, Adam Beach. It's like, okay, they're not like A-list stars, but at the same time, I'm like, you know, Cyclops right it's B- uh, billy know, bob thornton sling blade right i mean it's yeah, it, it... <laughs> and he got bart the bear to be in it
0: right <laughs> oh, oh this is not a this doesn't sound to me like a bear advocacy film
1: <laughs> no this is definitely not this this actually reminds me of uh was it grizzly that film that came out in the uh in the uh, 70s yeah grizzly 1976 the big monster movie with this giant grizzly that's stalking a bunch of people and it was one of those films where they had such a small budget as i recall that it was a lot of kind of first person point of view shots from the monster or from the grizzly bear as he was stalking people going through the woods he rarely even got to see the grizzly And it didn't make for a very good film, as I recall. Now, Grizzly, from 1976, has a 5.2 star rating on IMDb. Into the Grizzly Maze has a 5.2 also. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I really don't think it's going to be any good at all. But the trailer just cracked me up because of the people that were in it. And these people, they all look like they're taking it incredibly seriously. So (laughs) I give it to them. (laughs) We're jumping into the grizzly maze.
0: They really do. They really do. <laughs> yes, yeah, they it's do. A, it's a scary... You don't want to be sucked into the grizzly maze. Like a vortex no, you do of not. grizzlies. It's Jaws in a forest. That's what we're trying to do here. And it turns out when you can see the grizzly, it's not as scary.
1: This uh, grizzly apparently is so mean that it's scaring all the other other grizzlies out of the grizzly
0: maze. Uh, again, reference Jaws. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Uh, yes. When does it come out? It's a very limited. Enough. I'm guessing a limited
1: release. <laughs> June 26th is when this bad boy is going to be uh, just bursting onto the cinematic world for all of us <laughs> to jump in, get ourselves lost in the grizzly maze. <laughs> I can't wait.
0: <laughs> Coming soon. To a playground near you. Cooties, you are what they eat. What do you think? <laughs> I could totally do that. I could totally pull that off, right?
1: That was pretty good. I'm
0: pretty excited for this movie, and I know it's going to be terrible. I know I know it is. You don't need to tell me it is, uh, because I'm doing Cooties, and that's the real tagline. You are what they eat. Uh, this film, uh, it, it, is a, it, it is what happens if Cooties... Uh, happened to be a zombie virus, which I think is brilliant. Why haven't they made this movie before? I agree. It it's what happens when a fourth grade class uh, breaks out in cooties and all the kids turned into the undead, and it is a, a, they they are as the film calls it a feral swarm of mass savages, and it's the uh, they are hunting down the teachers. The teachers are barricaded in. The classroom. I, as you know, am on the record. I do enjoy the zombie oeuvre. And uh, this looks like it's something right up my alley. Plus, it stars Elijah Wood, Allison Pill, Ryan, uh, uh, Ryan Wilson, Rain Wilson. I always get that wrong. Rain Wilson, uh, Nassim Pedrad from Saturday Night Live, Jack McBrayer, Jorge Garcia uh, from Lost. We like him very much. I mean, it's just, it's it's got a cast of uh, B list actors that I really like. <laughs> i find funny (laughs) and uh and elijah wood so what are you going to do um but i very very much look forward to this film i think it's going to be uh it's coming in already at a blistering 56 percent on rotten tomatoes which uh, i think puts it in the guilty pleasure category for some year down the road it hits theaters september 18th 2015 what do you think
1: Well, just like Into the Grizzly Maze, it also (laughs) is at 5.2 on the IMDb star rating. So, yes, another... (laughs) Another stellar film that's attracted some uh, some names to star in it. Although, Lee Winnell is one of the writers on this one. And Lee Winnell, uh, of course, burst onto the scene as the uh, uh, co-writer and co-star of the original Saw. And has worked quite a bit with, uh, with James Waugh after that on and off uh, some of their movies. And has been pretty busy uh, in his own right. And... Uh, you know i uh, i do like the the kind of sensibilities he has within the some of his horror stuff and so as as bad as this looks it also made me laugh out loud several times
0: <laughs> i think so so i'm i am going to uh pledge uh my attendance at this film i think it's probably coming direct to digital uh i, I believe actually as i as I click the magic button, uh, yes, Internet, September 18th, 2015. I don't even think it's getting a theatrical release at all, and so I will be first in the digital line to check this one out. I can't wait. Cooties. Excellent. Excellent. Oh, Andy. Yes. You will arrive at the gates of Valhalla, shiny and chrome. In this wasteland, I am the one who runs from both the living and the dead used to a single instinct, survive. It is by my hand, you will rise from the ashes of this world.
1: I want to get through this go so... As the world fell Each of us in our own way was broken It was hard to know who was more crazy
0: Me Or everyone else Holy sweet Mary mother on a rocket ship Andy this was a fantastic film I concur You are still sad <laughs> No about that iTunes I, thing
1: I am it's just been dragging this, me down all week man
0: This movie was really good and it has it has done exactly what I needed it to do It erased beyond Thunderdome from canon it is that is just a that is a gone thing. It has been disappeared. It has met with an accident. And and Fury Road has become the canonical third film that people should watch after Road Warrior. That's my new position. <laughs>
1: wow. Yeah.
0: Ouch. It's so good.
1: It is so good. And and can I just say it's even better in D-Box? <laughs>
0: Come on, man. You got to bring that. That's like, it's way too early to bring that. That's like a a kidney (laughs) blow is what that is. I don't have Uh, D-Box. I bet bet most people listening to this show don't have D-Box and probably don't even know what it is. I know. It's, what does it it's do? A, go ahead. Get a, it out.
1: Everybody should find a D-Box uh, close to them and go see Fury Road there. D-Box is like watching a movie in a roller coaster seat. It's really what <laughs> it's like. It's it's a chair that vibrates and moves and shakes and, and all of the above uh, as you're watching the movie. And it's just fantastic. So every time a, somebody shoots a gun, you feel like a jolt. Or when you're in a car, the whole thing is like shaking and vibrating and you're like riding along with it. When the camera is doing a nice like... Uh, like uh, a <laughs> helicopter move across the desert the whole chair is kind of gently uh you know moving to the left or to the right with you and it's a treat
0: what it happens is, like on cuts treat. this is what i was thinking cuz i watched a whole bunch of youtube videos about how they make these things it looks like they take them really seriously and they they actually go through and then program scene by scene the the movements of the chair it looks really pretty cool yeah. um what's it what is it like when it cuts from a smooth helicopter thing to uh now you're in the car or getting shot thing like it can I imagine that's pretty jarring.
1: No, I mean it's it's. I mean it's not like so incredibly different from one type of of shaking, like a helicopter shaking, or a nice a nice smooth track to all of a sudden the shaking. I mean it's just it's like you know all of a sudden it's just jolt, it's shaking it a little bit. I mean it's not it's not horribly jolting when all of a sudden it changes what it's doing.
0: Okay, all right. Well, I did not see it in the box, and I think you and and the good uh, Steve Sarmiento are the. The only two people I know who've ever experienced it so mean. <laughs> uh, what? What? Uh, so let's talk. Let's talk about the movie. Uh, it's uh, it's it's really great. I think that
1: uh, this is the except for one thing. There's oh. one thing that I I I still am debating about how much it really bugs me. All right. Well, let's see, let's see. Let's right. see. But. But I think it is the perfect example of what George Miller has been building to with all of the Mad Max films so far. I think that he has found the uh, the, the a really interesting story to tell with the uh, story of Imperator Furiosa trying to rescue these uh, women from the clutches of—or these wives, I should say, from the clutches of Immortan Joe— uh, I love the story. I think it's a really interesting one. Even in its simplicity, I think it's a, a really interesting look at kind of the futuristic, uh, this, this this dystopian society that has been created. I think that he has matured enough as a filmmaker to find the uh, just a really fresh way to do an action film uh, that just did not uh, need... To be over the top with Shaky Cam. It didn't need to have cuts every every two seconds. It just felt alive from beginning to end in a way that I just have not experienced in quite a while.
0: Yeah, I think that's it. The first thing that jumped that that jumped out to me was you know much more the visual expression of the film. And I think that the color palette in particular was fascinating. Uh, the The way he blends the the warm tones and the cool tones in a movie that is ultimately hot uh, I think is is was just wonderful. It was just so refreshing. everything on screen was was just a treat to my brain uh, the The way he captures the landscape of the void and barren desert. And yet, can introduce the most most complicated uh, machinery into this and create this dramatically huge set piece uh, out of vapor. Uh, I thought was really expert, and I think you you hit it. That this was um, this was George Miller's uh, sort of maturing uh, into the narrative in in a way that the, I was was just perfect. And it, you know, it's, you brought up something last. Uh, Last week, we were talking about—actually, I, I don't know if it was last—yeah, it was last week. We were talking about George Miller and wondering about his kids, right, when he had mm-hmm. kids. Right. Well, as it happens, he has answered that question. Uh, and uh, in an, uh, an interview with uh, uprocks.com, uh he says this— uh, speaking of these films, they live like imaginary friends in your head. The truth of it is, it's very simple, and it just occurred to me two months ago that this was the reason. When I made the first Mad Max, I didn't have kids. And then when kids came along, all I ever saw in the cinema were family movies, so my mind is alert to those. When I read the book Babe, the Sheep Pig, I was reading books to my kids, and I was like, oh, this will make a really interesting film if we can make the pig talk— and then my kids grew up, and now I don't watch family movies anymore. I'm watching more adult movies. I have teenagers now, just beyond Teenage Sons. It really is that simple. It's exactly yep. what we said. It's like we knew yeah. it. We were reading his we mind. We were reading his mind. Hmm. Uh, and I think that's, I, I think this is what you get when you get somebody who's been sort of stewing on um, the, the message of this film and uh, for so long uh, in the right way. It It is so anti-Lucas. Yeah. Oh, my goodness.
1: Anti-Lucas, anti-Michael Bay, anti yeah. just so many uh, types of filmmakers, uh, action filmmakers who have been dominating uh, the box office for so long. Yeah. And I mean, not to say that that type of filmmaking is a bad thing. I just think that this is a type of filmmaking that is very fresh and really gives a, a shot in the arm to action films.
0: Well, let's talk about stunts then first because this film as you say was incredibly refreshing on that front. Uh this this is why god made stunt people. Uh this this film was a glorious tribute to people who put their their lives at you know at risk uh to create motion pictures. I was really moved by it. What stands out for you?
1: <laughs> what doesn't stand out? I mean right from the start we've got uh Max in a quick car chase where his car rolls uh, which is a great roll in the desert and then leading that into a tunnel chase where he is uh getting prepped to be a blood bank basically uh for these other uh for these uh, uh war boys that Immortan Joe uh, has been grooming to fight for him his cultists and, really yeah, right. And and the blood bank essentially as these war boys um, get low on energy, they basically can tap into somebody else and and get a basically a, a blood
0: uh um, it's like I'm I'm imagining it's a radiation poisoning, right? It's essentially a transfusion.
1: Well, it it's right. It's like a transfusion. Well, and cuz I I don't know if they're not getting enough food. I mean, they're all there's clearly um all having issues from the radiation. Like um Nux has the two little friends on his shoulder, mm-hmm. and a lot of the others, in fact, I think pretty much all of them, have some form of growths uh, that appear on them. And so as they're getting worn down, they get a blood transfusion from one of these, quote-unquote, blood, blood banks to help uh, revitalize them. And so uh, Max has become one of those. And you get that great uh chase as he's trying to escape that, and he's running through the tunnels and uh and then just it just keeps going from there, then Furiosa is on the run, and then Max is out on the road <laughs> you know it just it just keeps going and as and as people have heard undoubtedly in the countless reviews and people just talking uh constantly about this film, it really is a big car chase from one end to the other and mm-hmm. it's uh it's just wonderful to to witness.
0: They put those guys on the swinging, springing sticks. Those were not CG. It was it, they put people there.
1: Yeah, which is fantastic. I guess they actually got um, Cirque du Soleil performers. They got Olympic athletes. There were over 150 different stunt performers working on this. Guy Norris, uh, God love him, the stunt coordinator on this. Uh, he was the second unit director and the supervising stunt coordinator. Somehow figured out the right way to work with all of these different stunts. And uh, I can't remember. I know I read how many stunt scenes, like different stunt shots they had. I feel like it was like 300 different stunts that they ended up doing in this film. Something crazy. And uh, yeah, just managed to get them all done. Um, and they look great. I mean, I, I love those guys on the sticks as they swing down and grab people and, and swing around. I loved the uh, just the bits of people like hopping off the sides of the cars, you know, when even just simple ones, seemingly simple ones. When Max is hanging off the back of the war rig un mm-hmm. you know, unclip, you know, snapping the chains from the uh, the hooks that the other cars have shot into the uh, into their truck to right. slow them down as they have their giant uh i don't know what you'd call those like dragging cages behind them to help slow the vehicle down
0: yeah um, yeah the, the incredibly clever device
1: and then even just the jumps like the motorcycle uh the the first motorcycle group that uh she is uh trying to get safe safe passage from they start attacking and you've got just crazy motorcycle stunts as these guys are are going over jumps over this rig as it's driving through the desert and they're like throwing grenades down on it and then um later you have that uh um Immortan Joe as he's driving that fantastic uh what is it like two 1959 Coupe de Ville's uh you know I think as as the uh as they described it um in uh um, in flagrante delecto, basically, Right, right. <laughs> the two cars fused together, um, as he goes over that jump to try to get ahead of them to slow them down. And uh, you know, just with the firework that they have going on here, you've got guys riding on the hoods of cars. There's a fantastic one where Nux and his old buddy are on the hoods of of their respective vehicles, spitting fuel into the exhaust ports on the front of the uh, the. Uh, I don't know what that little piece of the engine is that sticks out um, to basically like give them a boost and to get them to go faster. And they're just riding up there as the, as the vehicles are driving and just everything that they're doing is this incredible stunt that they do to incredible effect to make this film really live.
0: Uh, I absolutely agree. I think on the, on the, the special effects that we do have um the, what stands out to me incredibly, and I'm so curious if you know anything about this. I couldn't find anything. How did they do the fire? The way they did the fire, did? Am I alone in that? Like the explosions were so unique in this film to me. Is it just color color uh, timing of these of these effects, or or? Uh, what that was
1: my it? guess. That was my guess. Is that. In the, uh, in the color timing, after they shot the film, they went in and reworked the coloring to make those flames just... I mean, it's it's a really dark red with a really kind of bl- bright yellow. And uh, they're... I mean, it's just beautiful. But then also, sometimes there's just incredibly black smoke. And I would assume that that comes from whatever mix that they used mm-hmm. to build the explosions. They probably put something in that gave off a lot of that black smoke with the flame. Um but I don't know, I, I, I equally found just all of the color design of the film just stunning. I mean, even just like the red suit that the guitar player wears, it's that crazy red suit with his, you know, he's got that double end, uh, or that guitar that shoots flames out the end of it.
0: Yeah. The, the um, you know, generally in terms of world building uh, around vehicles and, and uh, you know, I'll call them creatures, but, you know, the guitar player is, is one of them, That that vehicle in itself, to me, is is sort of a rancor monster of this film. Which vehicle? the The vehicle with the four giant drummers and the guitar on the front, the the mm. the rolling speaker. Uh, right. That to me is such a such a monster. Right. That's the the giant monster of inspiration for the for the War Boys. And uh, I found this film like I got that same feeling watching this film in terms of cleverness of just industrial design. That I got watching, uh, you know, Alien for the first time, you know, seeing H.R. Geiger's work. Um, it, it was something that I understood, but was so novel that it it changed the way I looked at, at design.
1: It's, uh, yeah, they call that the doof mobile.
0: <laughs> I prefer I, my I, way which, I characterize I, it. My,
1: my understanding is it's as in doof.
0: Doof, yeah, doof, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, which uh, I I think is just a fantastic. Uh, I, I agree with you. It's a fantastic vehicle, and uh, the concept behind it: how the armies need their drummer boy. And uh, you know, it, I mean, you look back in time, and armies would have the little drummer boy to keep beat. And right. when you have your your army is all these vehicles, you have to have a drummer boy that's incredibly loud. So I think the creation of this, I. I, I thought was just brilliant. And I agree with you, the, the world building, this is, I think, a really smart way to build a world where you don't have to fill it with exposition explaining everything. The exposition is very low, but the puzzle pieces for this world are all there. And you get a really interesting sense of this very strange society that has has formed around Immortan Joe, whether it's the War Boys and their fixation on the way that they worship him, whether it's Immortan Joe and the way that he has his wives to essentially um, use them as vessels to try to, you know, raise the perfect son, um, thus far unsuccessfully. There's the milking women that they use to, uh, you know, get the milk, and the, of course we already talked about the blood banks. And then there's all the the the, the scrapping people who are just fighting for whatever they can get uh, from these guys, and just little things. There's the details, like when they first catch Max you see them tattooing on his back lots of information about like how I, I, I it goes by so fast I don't have a chance to look at it, but it's like how old he is, what his blood type is, um, all that information. And then you go down below as they're cutting all of his hair, you see this little you know, just, just waif of a child uh, like grabbing all of his hair and collecting it as if it's, you know, he can use it for something. I have no idea why that's there, but it's a detail that is such a fascinating one in everything going on in this world that feels really like these people have taken what they could find of the scraps of what's survived after whatever apocalyptic event happened and finding a way to rebuild it with the best of what was out there so that they could fight basically.
0: Yeah, I think so. And their expression takes form in kind of unique ways. I, I think the um, uh, when, when you look at the vehicles again, uh, the way the vehicles are constructed is becomes sort of an expression of—well, uh, in some cases, I think, rather obvious sexuality, and in some cases, just power and dominance— um, or i guess again sexuality through power and dominance but uh but it, it is such an interesting contrast when you look at the evolution or i say construct when you look at the evolution from the first film where where now we get to see you know humanity fallen uh into uh, or not even fallen but now we're we're evolving into you know this this could be what comes next on this potential horizon and um you know it ain't that great um so it, you know, for for me, that gets back to uh, to this idea of cultural conflict. When you have these people who are trying to build a civilization, and these people, they continue to be you know stepped on, pushed on, wiped out. The the ladies at the Green Place, um, this supposedly this Eden. Uh, that they're all trying the the five mothers in Furiosa are trying to to make it to the green place, uh, and and they get there and realize it's been wiped out uh, as well, and it's just you know a few women left, kind of holding, um, holding their their land. Um, it is um, it, it is horrifying and terrible, and yet it is portrayed with such incredible beauty. I think for me the strongest single shot in the film. Uh, is the shot of Furiosa screaming uh, as she falls down to her knees at what used to be the Green Place, kind of at sunset, sort of the blue hour, and he, she hits her knees, and the 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 sand is blowing just gently across the the dune, and she screams up to the sky, her eyes closed. I that was that was an incredibly moving sequence of the film for me.
1: Yeah. I agree it's a, it's a well, it's a very touching point in the film yeah. anyway that leads us into the third act when we kind of have hit that point where there's that separation between uh Furiosa and Max and the two different or, or her team goes off to you know try to cross the uh the wasteland
0: I it, there there's one I I want to well, you finish. I think I interrupted you. Finish. Your
1: oh, no, I was just gonna say it's it's just a very, um, it's a very powerful point in the story when we've really kind of it's, it's a nice breathing moment, really, because they finally have kind of gotten away from uh, at least for a time from Immortan Joe and from the bullet farmer who uh, they just escaped uh, in the kind of the I, I can't remember the the water area, whatever that place was, where all the crows are and the mm-hmm. the trees. Um, it's just it's a very powerful moment when you see uh, Furiosa finally reunited with the the remaining people from her clan. Right, the uh, right. v- was it Vul- Vulvalinis? yeah, yeah, right. Vul- Vulvalinis, yeah. Which uh, I was it was another brilliant little touch. It's like all these older women who are out there as survivors, riding around on motorbikes.
0: Yes. Yeah, and you know that gets to one of the things I wanted to just hear your thoughts on, which was this idea of, um, I I don't even know how how to I, I don't even want to give it too much airtime, uh, but it's this this whole piece on why you should not go see Mad Max Feminist Road. Uh, mm-hmm. Have you are you up to speed on that?
1: Oh yes, I was going to talk about it.
0: Well, go ahead and talk about it.
1: <laughs> uh, I just I was only going to just talk about how ridiculous it is. <laughs> I. I just... I can't believe that there are... I didn't even know that these... <laughs> uh, what do you call the Meninist groups are out there? that Like these men's rights movements that feel that this film has been hijacked by uh, feminists and they turned it into feminist propaganda, um, cleverly disguised as an action flick. And they were... I, I don't know who it is. The person... Um, on this website was trying to uh, get men to not see it. This guy refuses to see it because he says it's offensive to men. This is just from the blog post. He says, um, uh, this is the vehicle by which they are guaranteed to force a lecture of feminism down your throat. This is the Trojan horse feminists and Hollywood leftists will use to vainly insist on the trope women are equal to men in all things, including physique, strength, and logic. And this is the subterfuge they will use to blur the lines between masculinity and femininity, further ruining women for men and men for women. <laughs> wow. it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. And he goes, he goes on. And uh, the article that I read is actually, it was a very funny one in the Chicago Tribune as this person's like, well, should I do it? I'm going to, you know, (laughs) I think he says, uh, I have two problems with this guy telling me that I can't, uh, not to be lured in by the fire tornadoes and explosions. I have two problems. One, I really like fire tornadoes and explosions. (laughs) And two, I can't imagine anything less manly than letting some other dude tell me what movie I can or can't see. (laughs) Which I thought was brilliant. (laughs) And then he goes on to uh, talk about the scene where uh, Furiosa, when Mad Max tries shooting the, I think it's the bullet farmer's vehicle, and he keeps missing, and then Furiosa takes his gun and shoots the vehicle, uh, blowing it up. And the guy, uh, this writer, uh, who is the writer, Uh, Rex Hupke, said, the moment was so heavy on the feminism, I was worried my penis might fall off. (laughs) I was able to keep it on by thinking about America's lack of paid maternity leave. (laughs) uh he he uh, yeah. had a great sense of humor about the this whole ridiculous notion so it's a fun article to
0: read it is uh it is a fun article to read and we'll put that in the show notes it's it that that one is worth checking out the other is not the the no. problem yeah. that i have with it is that you know first of all he built all of his assertions off of a, a trailer in a film he hasn't seen uh and that that i can imagine uh, can't imagine uh uh, certainly, much less uh, intelligent uh, way to build an argument. Um, but I, I also, uh, I am just of a mind that this film, which I believe actually has an incredibly well balanced uh, uh, set of uh, gender roles in it, uh, and and I just love the fact that the saviors in this case uh, were a pair of incredibly strong people this was uh essentially you know this was uh man and woman rescuing civilization right the cradle of civilization in the form of these uh women who were the the mothers the birthing mothers of this of of our soon to be future tribe delivering them unto eden i mean if this wasn't an allegory for adam and eve i don't know what it is um and so I I I really enjoyed it. I loved the way uh Charlize Theron played this character. I thought she was just magnetic and her strength and the contraption that she wore on her arm which was really I I thought very compelling, particularly when she took it off. I thought that was a great effect. Um I uh, that I just thought it it aced it in every way for me.
1: Charlize Theron was the strength in this film. She really um Grounded the film in a, a gravitas that made the story relatable, and really put me in a place where I could I could understand what it would be like under a regime like Immortan Joe, and how awful it must be to be trapped in it like uh, like these women were. I really loved that aspect of the story, and you know, thinking about this, this is the sort of film that I. In the right sort of year, I really think that Charlize Theron could potentially get an Oscar nomination for it. I mean, it really depends on the year. Yeah. I mean, Sigourney Weaver got an Oscar nomination for Aliens, for Pete's sake. Yeah. You know, I could equally say that this is that sort of role. And I think Charlize Theron brought so much power to it um, a quiet sense of anger and pain that always registered. And I could get everything she was feeling from it without ever feeling like she was going overboard and not and without her ever having to fill us with exposition or backstory or, you know, even go to bed with Max. It was like this was a great uh, you know action film where you didn't have to have your the the male and female protagonists sleeping together.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Uh and and that doesn't mean the film wasn't uh, you know wasn't sexy it was just very sexy in a different way yeah uh, and and i thought that was really uh really wonderful um uh, i think you're right i think this this could be that that film for her and wouldn't it be an interesting uh interesting way for this film to play out the thing the thing i i want to reflect on a little bit more though is the is what her strength in this film did to the role of max who after a, a really sort of blisteringly uh painful introduction to the film. Um, he sort of resolves into the role of a tool to, you know, as the partner to help deliver these people to their destination. Uh, but, um, well, I, but, I don't know. Maybe we should it, go ahead.
1: I was going to say, but hasn't he always, well, maybe yeah. not in the first film, but the second and third films, surely that's exactly the role that he took in those films as well. Yeah,
0: it it really was. And I don't think I saw it as much in, in, uh, in Thunderdome because I was blind by rage, but, (laughs) but, but he really did. And I thought this, this film really cemented that, that role as the archetype, uh, you know, for Max in this film. And maybe it was exacerbated by the fact that it wasn't Mel Gibson, that Mad Max is, is, you know, with the change in actor, uh, Mad Max becomes the archetype and not the person. And I thought, for me, that worked really well. But we did have Karen Kay write into us on Twitter saying, uh, Saw Fury Road missed the Mad Max persona of Mel Gibson. Uh, Hardy, no charisma, just a Bane voice. Uh, What's your take on that?
1: Well, as I said at the beginning, (laughs) there was one thing that uh, I'm still not sure how much of a problem it is for me or not. But it is Tom Hardy. I actually really like him as a person. It's just, but there's something about his voice, and maybe it's just the dialogue that they gave him that it never, it never quite uh, worked a hundred percent for me. And uh, I, I don't know. I'm so torn because I, I think the film is just is is pretty uh, perfect. Otherwise, it's just there's something about him. I, I don't think it's a lack of charisma. I just feel like. Just some of the ways that he kind of grunted sometimes, it it just didn't come across as the way that I thought Max would have been portrayed.
0: I okay, I I see that. I disagree uh, because he, I, for me, he just he was that character. I th- I think I see the point. Particularly the Bane comment. It may have been a mistake to put him in that metal face mask. <laughs> up front, (laughs) and then have him grunt the way he grunted up front. I just... I'm just saying, it, it, Bane has become There's kind of a, a... a legendary iconic character and not always in a good way. Um, right. You know, the voice, the, the face, the, the everything. So I think that may have been a thing. Uh, but for me, what I really liked about it in, in terms of Hardy's portrayal, it, you know, we know that this film takes place after Thunderdome, some time after Thunderdome, long enough so that the, you know, the machines and the, you know, culture can kind of take on this new direction, this new fork, and, and create this even more kind of animalistic or savage uh, sort of society. And I should say just this savage side of society. One of the things that I think is really great in this film, and I'm saying this kind of parenthetically, is we get to see a lot more of the people. And the people don't actually look all that bad. Um, The people, when they're out there begging for water, you know, they look like just really poor people who are living under the thumb of a Morton Joe. And I thought that was a really nice touch. And we can get into the discussion around, you know, management of of environmental resources, which I think this film subtly, um, you know, puts a fork in too. Anyway, uh, with Hardy, what I like so much from the very beginning when he eats the two-headed lizard, we see this guy who is a savage. He has become more savage, more mad than ever before. And what comes with that is that sort of grunting, guttural, you know, do whatever it takes to survive kind of a thing. But the transformation that he goes through, I think, is really subtle and really nice once he is, he is brought into the path of the women and becomes, once again, the rescuer um, and, and gets that thing off his face. So he now has both a physical transformation, and then we get, to, we get to hear his transformation. We get to feel his transformation as he becomes more of an active player on the, the war machine. Sure, and as, as he that.
1: goes, and as he goes from fool to finally yes. giving her his name of Max, yes. which I thought was great, and I agree with all of that. It's just it. I think for me, it really did boil down to the tone, the pitch of voice that that Hardy ended up using in the film. It just it. Uh, and again, I'm still trying to decide how much it how much it bugs me, um, because it's. I mean, I I agree with everything that you just said. It's just that there's something about it that. Sometimes I'm like, hmm, is that really strike me as Max? And I guess that's just this, you know, I'm just going to have to watch it a couple more times to really uh, get a handle on it. But uh, um, did you hear the whole, the whole, I don't know. I think I'm going to call it a very silly theory about Mad Max. And
0: uh, that Mad Max actually is Bane.
1: (laughs) Right. Not quite, but, you know, People will try to come up with theories all the time about things, and this is a theory about since Mad, uh, Mel Gibson is not playing Mad Max that it must not really be Mad Max. And this whole theory is that this character of Tom Hardy is the grown-up uh, version of the feral kid from The Road Warrior.
0: Oh no, I disagree with that.
1: I think it's I think it's bunk. I think it's just completely silly. Um, there's you know, people you can search around on, you know, Mad Max fan theories and, uh, read all about it. But I, I think it's just, it's just kind of nonsense. It's, it's an interesting one to think about, but I, it doesn't make any sense to me. I actually, you know, to me, it seems like this actually would have taken place between road warrior and Thunderdome because there still seems to be quite a bit of fuel and Thunderdome. There really is no fuel. They're making it out of pig methane. um, and he still has his car, and he doesn't have it when we get to Thunderdome. And uh, uh, so it seemed much more to take place between those, except for the fact that George Miller then comes out and yes. says it takes place long afterward. <laughs> I was like say. George. Yeah. I, I think, you know, here's the thing I think about <laughs> George's sense of this world encompassing all four of these films. I think he creates a really magical world. I just don't think he necessarily spends time figuring out how they all connect between all the films.
0: <laughs> well, and part of what he said, you know, his full quote was, you know, at least in this particular interview, uh, you know, where does this fit into the answer the question, where does this fit into the timeline? He said it's not a precise chronology because I never intended for there to be, but after the last one, after Thunderdome. Yeah. However, my crazy theory is that he is like me and wants to erase history in terms of Thunderdome. And did you catch how many times uh and, and the answer is uh, enough. Uh, how many times the characters looked up at it looked practically directly into the lens and say, "Redemption." Uh huh. <laughs> that is George Miller's message to me and those like me, right-thinking, sane people, who thought Thunderdome was in just nutso, and uh, also, and and it was a message that said, "Hey, you you were right," and and this is what you deserve. That's funny. <laughs> is it? <laughs>
1: I'm, I'm going to let you have that. You can
0: have that. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, my uh, my last just cinematic observation that I loved so, so much, and, and I'm going to file this with the redemption story. Did you notice, did you get a sense for uh, what, what I'm going to call uh, Master Blaster Redux in this film? What's that? Nothing, huh? You I'm thinking there was there, <laughs> there was the the giant uh, looking through the the telescope at the beginning and the oh, giant yeah. bearded baby in a floating <laughs> right right floating baby seat <laughs> who kept like giving orders <laughs> for daddy the
1: two his two sons his right. two
0: sons right they were uh, that was that is my theory is that was what Master Blaster should have been all along <laughs> crazy giant radiated bearded baby person. <laughs>
1: I love the names in this. I, I, ben Lott brought a good point up on uh, on Facebook that uh, George Miller may come up with great names, but he doesn't often let you know those names until you see them in the credits. Yes. I agree with that. But I do love the names. Uh, it, the Imperators and Imperator Furiosa, uh, Nux Imperators. Immortan Joe, Slit, Rictus Erectus, Toast, The Knowing, The Splendid, Angarad, Capable, The Dag, Cheeto, The Fragile, The People Eater, The Bullet Farmer, The Doof Warrior, The Organic Mechanic, The Valkyrie, The Vuvulani, or Vuvulani Corpus Colossus. It's just, it's so rich in just amazing, uh, uh, just world building with all these crazy names i love it
0: yeah you can kind of get a sense for the writing process too can't you i mean the detail that he goes into putting in these names that uh, that end up being important to no one really but himself because they're certainly not important to the film um Mm -hmm. if if they're not important enough to share in the context of the script but they were clearly important enough to uh to write for yes. him, you know, I'm, and and I, I certainly I, I resemble that remark. Like I, I I can understand the the need for that level of detail in the names. It's it's perfect.
1: Did you have any that uh, that stood out as one of your favorites of all the uh, crazy people that we encountered? Yeah,
0: Cheeto the fragile. You liked her. I liked her. I sure was did.
1: She the, was she the one who ended up kind of falling for Nux?
0: I think so. I, I, she was kind of the the soft one, but I get them I get them confused, and I haven't seen it again as you have, so I just saw it the once. Um, I, I
1: get confused. I I think one of my favorites is the Bullet Farmer, and I love how he oh with his feet. I, well, no, that's the People Eater. Oh, what the People Eater? Yeah, he's got oh, the, the giant. Bu- okay, right. The Bullet Farmer is the one who uh, joins up with them, and it, and then he's the one who's chasing them in that car tank.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: And it looks like he pulls one of his teeth out that he's got like at a bullet. In, in, in his like, tooth.
0: Where, where his tooth is. He
1: pulls <laughs> it out to shoot at him. I thought that was pretty fantastic. Yeah, that was
0: pretty good. Pretty good. Yep. Uh, so overall, it was a it was a huge win for me. What else is on you? Anything else on your list?
1: Um, just, you know, uh, John Seale did the cinematography.
0: Oh, he came out uh, of retirement for this.
1: He did. He came out of retirement. uh, Last film that he did uh, probably was uh, not what he wanted to retire on, but probably a good reason to just say, I'm done with this business, was was The Tourist (laughs) five years ago. Uh, Yeah, but he had worked with um, uh, Miller on Lorenzo's Oil back in 92. So they had worked together. And then, uh, yeah, he came out of retirement for this because... I believe that um, Miller had actually talked to uh, his former cinematographer, and I'm blanking on his name at the moment, but um, he had talked to, uh, who was it who did Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome? I'm blanking on his name.
0: Um, uh, the, we uh, talked about him last week. Why can't we Dean Semler. Him? Yeah, Dean, Dean Semler. Semler. That's right.
1: Um, yeah, Dean Semler was scheduled to do this, but as I, I, I don't know if people who have been kind of following the uh, ups and downs of trying to get this movie off the ground... Um, Dean Semler was scheduled to shoot this one and just, uh, because it ended up taking so long, um, and going on again, off again, on again, off again, since 98, I think is when Miller actually came up with it and started pushing to get it made. Um, Semler ended up dropping. Now I will say Semler, um, unfortunately ended up doing Paul Blart Mall Cop 2 and the last witch hunter. So maybe he would have been better off sticking with Miller. Um, <laughs> that being said, I do think that uh, the film looks uh, pretty stunning the way that it is. So kudos go to John Seal for what he brought to the table here.
0: The uh, the the quote that Miller comes back to is from Roman Polanski, Polanski that there is only one perfect place for the camera at any moment, any given moment in a movie. And, uh, I, you know, we've talked about this in the context of Mad Max films now three times. And I, this film, I think, uh, demonstrated that in spades, the placement of the camera inside the action, not, you know, as it was so magnified by the scale of action that they put out put on in this desert, uh, was just mind blowing. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Brilliant. And and the just general composition. I've already talked about my favorite film, but but you look at the general composition, particularly any time the Doof mobile was in scene, the just beautiful, perfect triangles uh, that usually lead from the flame coming out of that of the flame powered guitar, uh, leading down to this the the fantastic crescent of cars just careening across the desert it was just so pleasing and so terrifying. Awesome.
1: Yeah, it was stunning. Colin Gibson did uh, the production design that he did all through this with the cars, with the, uh, you know, helping figure out what the costume design was going to look like that Jenny Beaven did. Um, all of that was great. Um, all the way down to Mar- Margaret Sixel's, uh, um, George Miller's wife, uh, she did the editing and <sighs> stunning work. All of it's stunning work.
0: Tight, tight, mm-hmm. tight. You know, they did compare the number of shots. Yeah, I saw that. Did you That's see that worth talking about, Yeah, I, I'm not sure if it's how worth talking about it it, it is, right? It looks like uh, uh on our favorite cinemetrics, uh Road Warrior has uh fourteen hundred and three shots coming mm-hmm. in at ninety minutes. And um this uh the Fury Road comes in at twenty seven hundred cuts uh at over two hours
1: right at 2 hours. Yeah. Right, so that so that's 22.5 cuts per minute Compared in this to film
0: 15 and something.
1: Yeah, it's like 13.33 cuts per minute in The Road Warrior. Yeah.
0: So more. Like but you know to your point early on, this is it it's not so many cuts that it feels like, you know, a a born film. Right. Um, it it definitely feels well paced, and man, it it moves, but it doesn't move so fast that you can't keep up with it at all. And I thought that was a that was like a love letter to his audience from George Miller. I mean, it was it was so such a treat to be able to say I could see everything that was going on in this film, even to the point where I think for me the the biggest mystery is how Immortan Joe's gas mask could actually rip off his face. Uh, but even yeah. that, I could I could keep up with.
1: Well, John Seal said. Uh, about George Miller and, and the way that they shot. He said, it'll be running below 24 frames because George, if he couldn't understand what was happening in the shot, he slowed it down until you could. Or wow. if it was too well understood, he'd shorten it or he'd speed it up back towards 24. His manipulation of every shot in that movie is intense.
0: Wow.
1: So he really looked at every single shot to make sure that it was understandable.
0: I'm going to start playing with that. Yeah. And just because what I do is like, you know, interviews and B-roll of buildings, I'm just going to slow them right down. (laughs) I want you to see that corporate logo transition to a fountain, transition to a CEO.
1: (laughs) As long as it's understood. That's the key. It will be
0: understood in spades. So good. funny. Anything else on your list? Uh,
1: Other than I was going to mention that this was originally scheduled to shoot in Broken Hills where uh, they had been filming. uh, I believe that's where they shot uh, The Road Warrior. And unfortunately, because there was huge, huge storms that happened right before they shot, the whole place was covered with wildflowers, which they decided (laughs) would not actually look right for the film. So they moved it over to Namibia. Uh, Principal photography began in July 2012 in Namibia. And they filmed over there for a... uh, I think they, they shot from July 2012 to December 17th, 2012. It was 120 days of filming. So a long time in very hot temperatures in Namibia, but a gorgeous look for this film that I think uh, kept up with the same vibe that they had caught in Broken Hills and in that area.
0: Such a bummer not to shoot in Australia, though.
1: It was, and I know that that was something that Miller had been pushing for for quite a long time. I mean, geez, he was set to start shooting this back in 2001 before 9-11 happened. Uh, On and off with Mel Gibson, on and off with different production companies and funding and just things, you know, the economy and everything kept changing. He was going to film this 3D and then they decided that it was going to be too complex with the 3D cameras with all these cars.
0: Oh, did you you see it in Australia, in uh, 3D?
1: In, in australia yeah, no, in, I did, in australia but i did see it in 3d uh and the 3d i thought it wasn't uh, shot in 3d but i thought they did a nice job with it yeah. and they only pulled one real 3d trick which i thought was kind of fun at the end when everything's kind of blowing up and and uh the guitar from the Doofmobile comes flying right at you that's the only thing that really comes out of the screen and like feels like it's going to hit you in the face followed by the steering wheel and i thought that was uh those were nice touches <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, I, it wasn't gratuitous. No, it wasn't. Uh, but I, I did enjoy the 3D. I didn't find it uh, offensive at all. Um, all right. So how's it doing?
1: Um, it's doing well. It's, uh, you know, it's hard to give the numbers. This is one we'll have to be evaluating uh, for a little while. Um, this film, it cost $150 million to make. So, I mean, he went from the first one, I think, was, what, 200000 to this one, $150 million. So quite a change in budget. Um, this one had $60 product uh, prints and advertising budget, so all told $210 million to get this film out into the world. So far, in one week, it's grossed almost $60 million domestically and uh, almost $78 million internationally. So while, if you just look at the numbers strictly for what it is, it hasn't broken even yet, it is on track to doing so. It actually did really well for itself this first uh, weekend and this first week people uh, were quite impressed with actually all the movies that were playing this weekend there's a lot of money made at the cinema
0: it was a big weekend and and it looks like the only thing that's beat it so far is pitch perfect 2 um, but which if, go ahead
1: i was going to say people people attribute that to the fact that that is a sequel to a much more recent film yeah. mad max i mean you know the last one of those was 30 years ago and pitch perfect 2 was pg13
0: yep If they're, you know, people want to go to the movies, this is the one they can see, and they've already seen Ultron, right? And uh, why are they? Why would they go see Hot Pursuit? But it (laughs) it turns out uh, a lot of people could answer that question. I don't, I don't get it. (laughs) That's because it's
1: got Sophia in it.
0: (laughs) Uh, All right. Well, we should probably rank it.
1: Let's do it. Let's
0: do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. And you can friend us. Like us over there. Follow us. And uh, let's see if our top films line up with your top films according to the flick chart. Do you need me me to vamp? Sorry. Hold on.
1: I (laughs) I thought I was ready, but I wasn't. (laughs) Okay. Ready? I'm ready. All right. Mad Max Fury Road. Or the Road Warrior. Oh, Mad Max Fury Road. I love that we're starting with the competition within the series. I know. And I completely agree. I know. Mad Max Fury Road or Sleepless in Seattle.
0: Well, I know what I'm going to say.
1: I'm saying Fury Road. Me too. (laughs) Mad Max Fury Road or Fight Club.
0: This is going to surprise you.
1: I'm saying Fury Road, and I know you are, too. I am, too. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't think I've picked anything over Fight Club in years. I love, uh, the no, f- you, I love the Fight Club.
1: You have, because we got a new number five a few weeks ago. Well, I know,
0: but I don't think it was ranked against Fight Club. Well, but it passed it. I know. I'm just saying, if, when it comes up <laughs> against Fight Club, I pick Fight Club. This is a banner yeah, day. This, this was a
1: banner day, yes. Mad Max Fury Road, or Brazil?
0: Oh, I'm I'm going Fury Road.
1: Maybe it's because it's so fresh in my mind, but I'm <laughs> going to say Fury Road also. Oh my, Mad Max Fury Road or Requiem for a Dream. I'm I'm saying Mad Max. Me too. Wow. Mad Max Fury Road, Pete, or 7? seven believe it or not I'm conflicted on
0: this one me too me too but I think I think that's where it's going that's that's where it stops that's where all this all this madness stops is it seven all this all this mad maxness <laughs> this, is, this is, it must,
1: it must stop yeah
0: something has happened oh
1: yeah uh I don't know seven I think is Fincher at the top of his form. And Mad Max Fury Road is George Miller at the top of his form.
0: I don't disagree. I do not disagree. Just saying.
1: Yeah, I'm going a seven. I'm just, I'm a little disappointed about that. (laughs) Mad Max Fury Road or Touch of Evil?
0: This one I am super curious how you're going to hit.
1: I It's I I want to say Mad Max. I uh I'm wondering if I'm an idiot
0: but <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's just think back. Let's just be sober about this. What did we say about Touch of Evil?
1: Well, oh, it's a brilliant piece of cinema. We just I mean, have to really remember.
0: Is. Yeah, what is it that stands, what are the iconic sequences in Touch of Evil? Uh the or, the Orson Wellesiness of it, the 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 when he kills uh, uh what's his name in the rooms terrifying. Uh he's he is an incredibly complicated character. It's wonderful cinematography. It's a pretty easy film to watch. Mm-hmm. 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 I don't remember seeing any giant orange fireballs in it.
1: No, the story. Uh, the story. It's. I mean, it's a little more convoluted, maybe, uh, but in a way that makes sense for the story. It has a nice convoluted uh, mystery story that they're telling you there. Mm-hmm. Um, it does have Charlton Heston playing a Mexican. <laughs>
0: That that was that was you know if there's going to be a weak point in that film against Fury Road, and I think you would probably say the same thing about Tom Hardy. I mean, if it's if it's if there's a weak point, it's going to be. It sounds like for you, it would be Tom Hardy.
1: Yes, it uh, it would be, but it's it's just a slight weak point. And same thing with Charlton Heston; it's not a huge weak point for me.
0: Well, I'm just going to say, uh, Charlton Heston is a slightly bigger weak point for me. And as you know, I didn't have a weak point with Tom Hardy. So you do the math. Mm. Mm-hmm.
1: So does that mean you're saying Mad Max?
0: I, 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 I'm, I'm a mercy to your words.
1: <laughs> we just got a new number five.
0: And now we have a new number five.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, we've got Matt. Okay, so I'll, I'll say Mad Max. Are we going to say Mad Max Fury Road or Jaws?
0: Yeah, this is uh, this is <laughs> harder.
1: <laughs> I have to go with Jaws on this one.
0: Yeah, I think probably so. <laughs> I
1: think it had a really good run,
0: man. Yeah,
1: that's pretty crazy.
0: That's, that is cr- that is bananas.
1: Yeah. Well, it's it, so th- so that put it at number five.
0: Out of 184, 185.
1: That's, yeah, well, say out of 185 now. Uh, beating out uh, Touch of Evil, Requiem for a Dream, Inception, Alien, Raiders of the Lost Ark, All the President's Men.
0: <laughs> Butch Cassidy.
1: Yeah, we, we really like this film.
0: We did. I still feel really good about our top 20, though. And when you look at... I'm a little bummed that All the President's Men got bumped uh, out of the top 10. Um, and... I'm surprised that Brazil uh, is is falling, is, is moving into vulnerable territory, but that it rounds out our top 20, number 20 with aliens, uh, it, it still feels pretty good.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a strong top 20. What did we just bump out of the top 20?
0: That's a good question. Uh, oh, The Matrix.
1: Mm.
0: The Matrix and The Fisher King so far this year have fallen out of the top 20. Wow. Yeah. So there you go. Interesting. Wow. Well, (laughs) yeah, it's I mean,
1: it's a good film. I am uh, unduly impressed with what Miller brought to the table with it um, and absolutely look forward to seeing it. Um, I'm hoping to catch it in the theater again before it leaves, uh, because it's just so much fun to see in the theater. I'd like to take my wife this time, actually, because I do want to get her her opinion on the uh, this whole feminist viewpoint of the film and see what she has to say um, of just what this film is about. Because I think it's about a lot more than just explosions in the desert and uh, and car chases. I, I think it's just a really interesting look at this dystopian world and I love what Miller did with it. Oh, and we didn't even mention that he brought on the uh, Vagina Monologues um, uh, playwright to come and be a consultant on some of this, which I thought was very interesting.
0: That is interesting. Yeah. Wow. All right. Well, I it, agree with you, and I don't think I can get my wife to sit through it in the theater. She'll need to see this on, on the little screen. Hmm. Uh, I don't think she'll sit through it on the big one. But uh, I, too, am interested in that. So report back. Let me know what she says. I will, I will. It. I will. Right. And
1: the good, the good thing to hear is that uh, George Miller's already said there's going to be another one.
0: I, I have to imagine he has said that. <laughs> that is so good. And, and when he started kind of uh, comparing Mad Max to James Bond, I, I, I felt good. I didn't feel, you know, sullied. Yeah. That's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. All right. All right, my friend, where do we go from here? We are going to uh,
1: uh, transition out of Mad Max, and we're going to uh, jump into some black and white cinematography of James Wong Howe, a wonderful cinematographer from uh, the early days. We're going to watch The Thin Man, King's Row, Sweet Smell of Success, and Seconds.
0: Oh, what a good good mix. yeah absolutely it's gonna be a fun fun ride
1: all right it will be for sure
0: until then uh, I'm gonna go to bed
1: all right I am going to go hop on my doofmobile and drive it around the neighborhood
0: Uh, Stacy Plotkin, uh, writes into Amazon, uh, with this review, I'm still shaking my head, wondering why this is getting the reviews it is getting. I get the cinematography is great, but the storyline is completely vacant. It's more or less two hours of a chase scene. Max is a grunting ape, without a doubt, the worst movie I have ever gone to a theater to see. Ouch. Stacy does not agree with our assessment at number five.
1: Well, neither does Jeff Kelleher, who also gives it one star, says, who cares about these people? Paraphrasing Lincoln, for those who like this kind of movie, this is the kind of movie they will like. (laughs) Wasn't that part of the Gettysburg Address?
0: Yes, I think it was. And and I think he was referring to Mad Max. I'm not sure.
1: (laughs) I I believe he was. (laughs) Might have been the first one. It was was quite a while ago. It was a long time ago. I
0: saw that in Lincoln.